Would you pray with me again as we begin to dig into God's word? Psalm 25:14 says, "The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them." Father, that's our desire in these next moments that you would make your covenant known to us. Show us the wonders of your great love, the glories of your son, and the power of your spirit so that we might know you more fully and love you more deeply and follow you more closely. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 62, the passage that the kids read so beautifully for us just a little while ago. In this chapter, Isaiah paints a vision of salvation and what a picture he gives us. Now, Isaiah is an artist And he uses words and metaphors and symbolic names. He uses historical references to paint a picture for us of salvation. And some of the language he uses was understandable to the folks of his day, but not so much to us 2,700 years later. Because he was writing about 700 B.C. And in order to understand his prophecies, we need to kind of zoom back in time to 700 B.C. and see what was yet forward for him. That would have included the Babylonian captivity, the return from exile, the arrival of the Messiah, the new covenant and the church age, the final judgment, the coming of Jesus, and the eternal kingdom. And all of these things lie stretched out before Isaiah like a series of mountain ranges. And he can't always distinguish necessarily the length of distance between each of these peaks or even the different peaks themselves. And so interpreting Isaiah is a little bit like playing three-dimensional chess. We're operating on several different levels at the same time. And we're not going to answer all your questions today, but we're going to try to see a picture of salvation that he paints that covers all of time. Now, in this picture, he paints a masterpiece. Now, a masterpiece is made to be admired, not analyzed. And yet, I'm not an artist. I'm a linear thinker. And so, it it helps for me to kind of take the pieces apart and see what they're made of, see what the brush strokes are. And then, hopefully, we can do that, and it might help you as well understand this passage. And then, we're going to try to put the picture back together and hope we haven't ruined the thing in the process. But what we're looking at is Isaiah's 3D masterpiece of salvation. And like a diamond, we're going to turn it around this morning and see four facets of the salvation of God, this great gift that he gives us, his people. The first facet of this vision of salvation is the need for it. And the answer is our ruin. There is the word right at the beginning in chapter 62, verse 1, her salvation as a burning torch. The word is used again in verse 11. Behold, your salvation comes. Now, this is not a word we use in everyday speech, but we know what it means. It means deliverance or rescue. The first thing we need to understand about salvation is why it is needed. What are we being rescued from? And the answer is our ruin. You say, where do you see that in the text? It's in code language, but it's in verse 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken, 
and your land shall no more be termed desolate. Forsaken and desolate were two words that 8th century Jews understood very clearly. They had just seen this happen to their brothers in the north. Israel had been conquered by Assyria, and many of them had been taken away into captivity to Assyria. That same punishment was going to come on the southern kingdom in about 120 more years. They were going to be forsaken. Their land was going to be left desolate because they had forsaken the covenant of God, and God was punishing them by turning them over to their enemies. They were going to be bound in shackles and taken away to exile. They were going to be in prison because of their sin. Their ruin is what necessitated their salvation. This is another round of the same theme that we got in the Garden of Eden, where God told Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is God's inviolable principle throughout all of history. The wages of sin is death. And we need salvation because we have sinned. And the ruin we see in and around us is a direct result of that sin. Now, some of you know what the ruin of sin looks like in your own life because you've made bad decisions and you're paying for it now. Others of you may feel like you must not have done anything really bad yet because your life is still pretty good and you think you might skate free. But let me tell you, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to our own way and the wages of our sin is going to be our death, our ruin, our destruction, unless we have a savior. The second facet of our salvation is its basis, his delight. Verse four, you shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in why would God care about us? Specks of dust on a piece of dirt floating in God's majestic, glorious universe. Especially when we've turned our backs on him and slapped him in the face. The only explanation for that is this, that he delights in us. And that's why he changed the name of his people from forsaken to Hephzibah, which means God's delight is in her. There is something deep within God that even when he is punishing his children, delights in them and wants to work for their salvation. It says of Jesus in Proverbs chapter 8, verses 30 and 31, the personification of wisdom, who was there creating the world at his father's behest. And this is what it says, then I was constantly at his side, I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. My friends, this is the why of creation. God made all of this universe, but then as the apex of his creation, he made humans that were made in his image. And because there is something of him in us, he delights in us as his creation. And this includes all human beings equally, born and unborn. 
It it includes all human beings, regardless of age, gender, ethnicity, race, nationality, ability, appearance, economic status. Every single human being delights God because his image is inside of them. And yet there is a special way in which God delights in his own people. He says these amazing verses in Psalm 149, let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with timbrel and harp. That's what we've been doing this morning. We've been praising our maker. Why should we do that? For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. Let his faithful people rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. The fact that God delights in us should so amaze us that when we go to bed tonight, we're not thinking about the day's activities or who won the playoff games. We're we're thinking that this is amazing that our maker, our creator delights in me. He says in Zephaniah 3 verse 17, the Lord your God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. How much does God delight in his people? So much that he breaks out in song over us. He exults over us as his people. And this is particularly remarkable when we contrast it to the love of God in other religions in the world. In Buddhism, there is essentially no need for God because it's simply a moral code that you have to work hard to obey. In Hinduism, the majority of gods are malevolent and they have to be appeased. And in Islam, Allah loves those who love him. In fact, it says in Surah 3, verse 31, if you love God, follow me and God will love you. But if they turn away, then Allah does not have love for those who disbelieve. You see, love in Islam is conditional. You have to earn it. But this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible delights in his people because he has love for them. That's why he says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world before they loved him that he sent his only son for them. That's why Israel's name is changed from Azuba, meaning forsaken, to Hephzibah, meaning God's delight is in her. So what should this do to our hearts, knowing that God delights in us? Well, my friends, love begets love, does it not? Perhaps you remember those awkward days in junior high or high school where you liked somebody. But the problem was you didn't know if they liked you back. So your your love is tempered. You're holding it in check. But once you get that tiny inkling that maybe they like you, maybe you get that note back in class or that brush of the shoulder in the hallway at school or that look from across the cafeteria and you know that yes, they also like me. What does that do for your love? It begins to mushroom and it explodes because they like you. Or for you modern people, maybe it's why a Bumble match is better than a Bumble admirer. Half of you are going, what in the world are you mumbling about? (laughs) 
Well, I know I'm getting up in years, but I, I try to keep up. <laughs> and, and the reason a Bumble match is better than a Bumble admirer is because in a Bumble match, you have both swiped right on the other's profile. You know that not only do you like them, but you've seen that they like you and something begins to move in your heart that yes, there's some potential here. My friends, God sees every wart and blemish on us. He doesn't just see our curated and photoshopped profile on Bumble. He knows everything about us. He, he smelled our morning breath and seen our bedhead. He knows us in our weakness. And he still swipes right on our profile because he delights in us, his people. Amen. Praise God. Can you believe it? Humans don't do that. But our God does. He loves us and delights in us as we are. We love because he first loved us. The need for salvation is our ruin. The basis is his delight. Thirdly, then, the goal of salvation, verses 4 and 5, a union. Look at those verses with me. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And here, my friends, we come to what I believe is the most amazing mystery of the entire Bible. The wonders of salvation are so stunning that Peter says even the angels in heaven long to look into these things. To change the imagery from a diamond to a gold mine here in point number three, we have found the mother load of gold. And we're going to have to dig deep here for a while. We're going to be in different passages of the scripture because we found here the greatest treasure in all of the universe. We're going to head down the rabbit hole of Isaiah 62 verses 4 and 5 and enter the wonderland of God's astonishing salvation for his people. The fact that he wants a permanent union with us. He describes it by a change of names. We've seen one already. His people had been called forsaken, and now they were called, my delight is in her. But secondly, he says their name had been desolate. They had been abandoned. But now their name is married. Beulah is the, the name given to them because they are now married. And in these two verses, Isaiah is mingling metaphors to paint a picture and here are the elements in this metaphor, in this picture. We have sinned against our creator. We have received punishment from him. He has restored us to himself. He desires to be married to us. And then he pours out his blessing upon us. It says your land will be fruitful as if it were married. That's the meaning there. And the offspring of this relationship, your sons, your children will be fruitful. They will be married in the land. So the NLT takes all of that imagery and kind of rephrases it. And I thought this was a very helpful translation or interpretation of these, these two verses. Never again will you be called the forsaken city or the desolate land. Your new name will be the city of God's delight and the bride of God. For the Lord delights in you and will claim you as his bride. 
Your children will commit themselves to you, O Jerusalem, just as a young man commits himself to his bride. Then God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. So what is the goal of salvation? I hope you saw it in that text. After Easter, one of our missionaries who works with international students in the United States asked one of their students, so what was the purpose of Jesus' death and resurrection? And the student answered, to erase human sin. And that's exactly right. That might be the answer that you would have given to that same question. It's the answer that I would have given until just a few years ago. But if we stop there, we miss the greatest grandeur of the gospel, and that is this. God doesn't just save us from something. He saves us to something. God doesn't just merely rescue us from destruction. He saves us to unite us to himself by faith. I have a vague memory as a child of finding a bird in our yard that couldn't fly. It had a, a broken wing or something was wrong with it, and, and I felt compassion for it. I delighted in this creation. And so we brought it into the house, we cared for it, nursed it back to health, and then one day, guess what that bird did? It flew away. It had been saved, but nothing more. My friends, that's not what God does with us. He doesn't save us just to release us from punishment. He saves us so that we might enter into a permanent, deep, and intimate relationship with him that is characterized by the relationship of a man and a woman in marriage. In 2011, Sky Jathani published a book called With, subtitled Reimagining the Way You Relate to God. His thesis was that the theme of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is that God wants to be with his people. In the garden, he was with his people. In the temple, he was with his people. In Christ, he was with his people. In the Holy Spirit, he was with his people. And in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, and the new earth, he will be with his people. And it was a, a profound book that changed my perspective on God's relationship with us as his people. But there's something deeper than just God wanting to be with us. He not only wants to be with us, he wants to be united to us. Now, the Bible uses many metaphors to describe our relationship with God. He is the vine and we are the branches. He is the potter and we are the clay. He is the king and we are the subjects. He is the head and we are the body. He is the shepherd and we are the sheep. And then that beautiful metaphor that we sang about today, he is the father and we are his children. And for some of us, that's as deep as we go in our understanding of our relationship with God. But God uses another metaphor in Scripture that is the most amazing and the most intimate of all of them. And that is the metaphor of marriage, of two people being united together permanently in body, soul, and spirit. And he's saying, that's what I want from my bride, my people. Who does not love a good romance? I think even us guys would say, yeah, we can handle that once in a while. Romance is the stuff of movies and of songs, of shows and of art. 
This is the theme that has reverberated throughout human history and across all cultures. This is probably the most fundamental of all human experiences, the love between a man and a woman. That's why Dion Jackson sang a song years ago, Love Makes the World Go Around. Now, love can be and has been misused and abused and perverted. And if that's been your experience, I am truly sorry. For some of you who are single today, perhaps you're wondering if you will ever experience this kind of love with another human being on earth. And I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know for you, single person, that there is somebody who loves you better than any human ever could and who is permanently committed to you and being in a relationship with you. What the Bible is pointing to in Isaiah 62 is the pure, driven love of a man for his woman. And I know something about that. Now, Marty and I are coming up on 42 years of marriage next month. So this was a while back, but I still remember very clearly falling in love. Now, I wouldn't want to bore you with the details, except I know you probably want some details. Because we all love a good love story. Well, I fell in love with her as a senior in high school, and something just exploded in me. I had no idea what, what happened. Um, took me a while to figure things out, and we began to correspond by mail, wrote lots of letters back and forth for a couple of years. And then after my junior year at Wheaton, I went back to Pakistan, where she was just graduating, graduating from high school, and I saw her again face to face, and something just... Like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. We spent hours talking that summer. She enrolled at Moody, I was at Wheaton. And at night, I would go into the closet of our dorm room and take the long extension line of the phone and squeeze it under the door and talk for hours into the wee hours of the morning, just completely lost track of time. Uh, the train rides into Chicago and back flew by as if they were just a moment. We walked on Lake Michigan together in zero-degree weather, and we didn't feel the cold. <laughs> Why? Because love was driving us together. You see, what's happening when a man and a woman are drawn together, there's this magnetic force that is pushing them to get closer together. And were we satisfied with walks along Lake Michigan? Oh, that was lovely, but we wanted more. And so one day I popped the question, a few months later, we said, I do. And then we entered into our permanent union as a married couple. Then and only then was the desire for the other truly fulfilled. Now imagine after a beautiful wedding and a delicious reception, all the singing and the dancing is over, the guests begin to leave, and the groom gets into his car by himself and drives back to his apartment and turns on the NBA playoffs. <laughs> what would you think about a groom like that? Well, you'd probably think, that must be Brad Merchant. <laughs> oh, that's going to cost me. Brad's going to come back someday. But you see, there's more to come after the wedding party. And I'm not just talking about the honeymoon. 
I'm talking about a lifetime of communication and getting to know each other better and intimacy and growing closer and closer together. That's what it's all about in marriage. And yet that's what we do with God. We make a commitment to him at the altar and then we turn around and watch video games the rest of our lives because we don't understand that he wants us. He wants us to be in fellowship with him. He wants us to be hearing his voice through his word. He wants us to be talking to him like we would somebody that we were in love with. This is his desire and this is the goal of salvation. When God chose to use this metaphor for his desire for us, he was not speaking of platonic love, my friends. He wasn't speaking of a distant, cool attachment and a desire just to help somebody out. He was talking about two people joining together as one. And he used the strongest possible human analogy to tell us how badly he wants us with him. Now, we need to be careful here. This is thin ice that we're treading on, is it not? Could God really desire us that much? We understand that God, because he is God, never needs anything beyond himself. And yet, these are his words, not mine. And what he's trying to communicate, and he said in Isaiah 54, 5, your maker is your husband. He's saying again and again, I have this strong longing for my people because I want to be not just with them, I want to be in union with them. Well, you might be thinking there's no way God could want me that much. I mean, I'm not really that great to begin with. And, and actually, if you knew what I've done, if you knew how dirty I am, there's no way in the world God would ever want me. Well, that's exactly why he wrote Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, with our bad breath and bedhead and everything, God loved us. He demonstrated his love by coming after us when we were ugly and undesirable. In fact, he has his prophet Hosea in the Old Testament actually enact a parable of this. And he told, if you haven't read it, it's, it's unbelievable. He told Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. So he does. They have three children together. Gomer continues in her unfaithfulness and her wayward ways. She ends up in the house of another man. She's left him now. And you and I in that situation would wash our hands of such a woman, be done with her. But God says to Hosea, I want you to go back. I want you to knock on the door of that man's house and open up your wallet, and I want you to buy your wife back. Dirty and filthy and disgusting as she was. And he's doing that to, to tell us how badly God wants us. And here's what he says in Hosea about himself and his people. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. What in the world? He's winning back a lover who's been unfaithful? Yes, that's what he says. He delights in us and he wants us so badly that he will woo us again to himself and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. 
Who would dare to think this about the creator of all the universe? Not me, but it's revealed in his word. And you say, well, surely we need some more proof of that. Well, that's a good question. That's a good theological instinct you have. So let's go to the New Testament. Jesus describes this union to his disciples in his farewell discourse. He says in John 14, 20, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. You see the union involved? He is in the Father, we are in Jesus, and Jesus is in us. We're not just with each other, we're in each other. That's what Jesus is trying to say. He says in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. We wanna live inside, we wanna be a part of your life. And then at the end of his high priestly prayer in chapter 17, he says, to the Father, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Do you need more? My friends, this is all over the epistles. Paul says in Romans chapter six that if we have been united with Christ in his death, we will also be united with him in his resurrection. It's not that Jesus died and rose over there and, and over here he kind of throws some blessing to us. No, we're united with Jesus in his death. We're united with him in his resurrection. And so Paul uses this phrase in Christ 164 times in his 13 epistles. This is the gospel for Paul, that we are united with Christ when we receive his forgiveness and his salvation. That is the goal of his salvation. He says in Philippians 3, 8 and 9, all the things of my life that I've accomplished I consider loss if I might gain Christ and be found in him. And then in case we miss the picture, Paul spells it out so clearly and beautifully in Ephesians chapter 5. As husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. So what did he do? He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. You see, that was our need, our sin. That was his delight in us. But the very next word in this passage is the key one to understand that whole text. It is the word, so that. Why did he do that? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, the reason Christ gave himself for the church is that he might present the church to himself as a bride. He wanted something, even though he didn't need it. He wanted a bride. But we were filthy and disgusting and dirty, and he couldn't even touch us. So Jesus came and he gave himself for us and he sanctified us by the washing of water with the word. He cleaned us up so that we might be a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And this is the bride that he presented now to himself. And we have a hard time understanding this because we can't see him. We do this by faith right now. It's a union of spirits that we do by faith that he desires. And we can't understand the depths of this love. That's why Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp 
how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. You see, his love just surrounds every part of our existence. It cares for everything. And, and he wants us to know this love that surpasses knowledge. We'll never understand it. But it's the love that delights in us and it's the love that brings us to himself as a groom brings a bride to himself. And then we will be filled up to all the measure of the fullness of God. You still not convinced? Well, let me just show you the end of the story. Do you know how history ends? With a wedding. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Ah, this is what it's all about. This is the goal of salvation. The Lamb has cleansed us, purified us, made us acceptable to Him because He's looking for that wedding day. The bride has made herself ready, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in case we can't believe it, He makes sure that we believe it, and He says, these are the true words of God. History will end in this marriage between God and his bride, his people. The union will then be complete and consummated. What is the final goal of marriage? It is full, complete union of two people. And what is the final goal of salvation? It is the full and complete union of us with our saving. So that's the need, the basis, the goal, and finally the result of salvation. And that's in verses 8 and 9. Look at those verses with me. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. What happens when God and his people are once again restored together in unity? Well, God gives them a new name. He calls them Beulah. He calls them sought after. And then he begins to pour his blessings out on them. In the Old Testament era, those blessings were spiritual as well as material. In the New Testament era, those blessings are primarily spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. But in that ultimate kingdom, there are going to be every single possible imaginable blessing that he is going to give us. Blessing on his people is one of the results of salvation. But there's another one. Glory to God. Look at verse 3. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. An amazing verse. Once we are saved from sin, we become a crown of beauty in his hand. We're not a crown that makes him king because he is already king. But when he has purified his bride, when he brings her to himself, we become like a, a crown of glory and beauty in his hand. We somehow adorn the beauty of God when we're united with him. God's people, you see, bear his name. His reputation is at stake. And when his people went whoring, his name was dragged through the mud. But now that he has restored them and forgiven them and cleansed them, his name is exalted because his bride is beautiful without blemish or spot or any such thing. Now, there's one other important note we need to look at in this passage, and that is, this is all spoken of corporately, not individually. We as Westerners tend to think this is all about me, but it's actually all about us, the bride of Christ. 
Yes, God does love you. You are his child. You are part of his bride. But it's something bigger than just you and God. God is creating for himself a bride from every tongue, nation, and tribe over all of the world. And so we should love God's universal church. You are a part of that, but just a small part. You should love your local church because we are a part of the bride of Christ. Christ died for College Park Church and those who believe in our midst. And that's why we should love the bride of Christ. It's, it's about our corporate experience together. God delighting in us and saving us and bringing us to himself. And so, how should we apply this sermon? Well, Isaiah gives us three quick applications, and I didn't give these first hour because I like second hour people better. <laughs> Real quickly, once we understand God's vision of salvation, number one, we should pray for it, verses six and seven. Take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in all the earth. You see, once we understand that God is about bringing salvation to all nations, we should so desire that that happens that we pray without ceasing that that would happen, that we would take no rest and give God no rest until he accomplishes all that he's purposed to do. Secondly, we will prepare for it, verse 10. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples, a reference to the, leaving the gates of Babylon and, and building up the highway back to Jerusalem during their restoration from exile. And the point is that God wants to bring his people salvation, but he is not a demanding lover. He will not force himself on anyone, but he waits for us to prepare the way. And John the Baptist told us in Mark 1 how we do that, simply by repenting, opening our arms to God and saying, God, I'm ready for all that you have for me. I'm going to turn from my life of sin that has only brought me ruin. And if you're here today and are not yet a part of the bride of Christ, what a beautiful day for you to come and, and open your arms to the salvation that Jesus longs to give you. And finally, we need to proclaim it. Verses 2, 7, and 11, he mentions the nations, the peoples, and the ends of the earth. The same words that Jesus used in the Great Commission in Acts 1.8. You see, once we get a vision of salvation, once this diamond is sparkling in our eyes, we're going to realize this is too great a treasure for us to keep to ourselves, and we're going to want to proclaim it to the very ends of the earth. We're going to want to do what he says in verse 1. I will not keep silent. I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch to the kings and the nations of the earth. We're out of time today, so we're going to come back to this at reach. That's when we talk about how we take this diamond of salvation to the ends of the earth. But how do you apply this now in your life as we close? Well, this is a unique sermon because love, true love, finds its own applications, does it not? See, when I fell in love with Marty, I didn't need coaching. Now, she was here first hour, so I had to admit that, yeah, I actually needed a little bit of coaching. <laughs> uh, girls are pretty different, and I, I needed some help. But once I kind of got over the, the hump, the, the love in me did what? It propelled me forward in the relationship. I didn't need somebody to tell me, you need to call her at 10 o'clock tonight. I didn't need a coach saying, you know, you need to visit her on Saturday. 
Why? Because my heart was filled with love for her and I just automatically knew how to do these things. I was thinking about her almost all the time. I was communicating with her whenever I could. And I wanted to please her, to make her happy. Not because I had to, but because I wanted to. My friends, this is the glory of the Christian faith. It is the freedom into which we enter when we join Jesus. We are no longer under the law. That's gone. We're under a new law of love. And if you find that you don't have those sorts of responses in your heart today to Jesus, if you're not thinking about him all the time, if you're not wanting to be with him and hear his voice and talk to him, if you're not living your life to please him, then there's just a simple solution. Your love has grown cold. And how do we fire up our love again? There's one and only one way to do that. We rekindle our first love for our Savior by gazing on his love for us. And that's what we're going to do now in song and as we remember the greatest emblem of his love for us when he gave his life for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, these mysteries are too marvelous. How could you delight in us who were so dirty and filthy? And yet you have, and you've sent your son. You want to be in union with us. You want us for your own. We are not worthy, but we believe your words today, Lord Jesus. And now help us as we think of your wounds, your suffering, that still speak of your love to us today, that you might kindle our love afresh for you. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.